You are listening to New Covenant Fellowship. My two oldest daughters are wrapping up their second season in T-ball. And uh, T-ball, in comparison with other sports, is a fairly complex game. For example, just for the sake of comparison, soccer is a much more simple game. Don't touch the ball with your hands, only kick it with your feet. Keep it within these white lines, kick it in that goal over there. Done. T-ball, which is the precursor to baseball, on the other hand is a little bit more complex. Hit the ball, run to the base. No, 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 not that base. I know there's three of them out there. Run to this base. Don't slow down before you get to the base. You can run through it. Wait, 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 wait. No, no, don't overrun second base or third base. You can't overrun those bases. Only first and home. And when you're on base and, and the ball gets hit, most of the time you run, but only if there's somebody on the base behind you. If you're at third base and nobody's on second, you don't have to run. There's all of these complexities in baseball and t-ball. And at this level, they're doing well just to hit the ball off of the tee and run to first base. Well, yesterday was our last regular season game, and uh, my, my children's team was in the field playing defense. And the other team was up to bat. They had a runner on first base and on second base, and the ball was hit to the pitcher. Well, when the ball was hit to the pitcher, there was one voice shouting at that pitcher, throw the ball to third, because after all, that's where the lead runner was going. You want to get the lead runner, right? Well, another voice was shouting, throw it to second, because that's a much shorter throw than either third or first, and at this level, kids don't exactly have a rocket for an arm. And yet a third voice is yelling, throw it to first, because the the kid that just hit the ball was running slower than molasses, and that would be an easy out. It would be a sure thing. So this poor kid playing pitcher to whom the ball was hit is hearing all of these competing voices. Throw it to first. No, throw it to second. No, throw it to third. Well, which is it? Which is it? And the poor kid had to discern between competing voices. Well, we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, this sermon in which Jesus is preparing his first century audience for life in the heavenly kingdom. And as he brings his sermon to a close, he warns those in his audience that they will soon have to discern between competing voices. Namely, God would raise up prophets with a message from God a true message from God, but all the while in their midst would be false prophets with a counter message, a counterfeit message. They would be struggling to discern between competing voices. But before we jump into the text in Matthew and see what Jesus has to say, let's define a few terms and kind of look at the historical backdrop that I believe will help us to get a better understanding and a proper understanding of not only Jesus' words, but the New Testament as a whole. You see, God historically has communicated to his people. Well, how does a God, the God of the universe, a God who is by nature spirit, a God who is invisible, how does a God like this communicate to his people? The answer is through people. God would raise up people designated as prophets who would essentially act as the voice 
of God, who would be his mouthpiece to deliver his message to people on his behalf. Now, one of the things to keep in mind is that in Israel, you couldn't find a prophet speaking forth the word of God on every street corner, on any day of the week, on any week or every month or every year or every season even. God's prophetic voice came in certain seasons. And usually it came at a time when God was about to do something big, something major, bring a judgment or bring about a transition. For example, the first major prophet that we find is Moses, who God raised up at a time when God was transitioning his people out of slavery and into freedom in the promised land. A time when they were going from slavery in Egypt to life in the promised land under the old covenant. He was giving a covenant. This was a major time. God was doing a major thing, a new thing. It was a time of transition. And then later, we find that there's kind of a lull in the prophetic voice and then once again, when God is about to bring forth something major, a transition, namely transitioning from a time of judges to a time of kings, we see more prophets emerge. That's when we see the voice of Samuel and Nathan and Elisha and Elijah. And then we see kind of a, a lull again in the prophetic voice. And then once again, when God is about to do something major, something big, something huge, namely bring destruction on the northern kingdom at the hands of Assyria, God raises up prophets like Isaiah and Micah. And then there's a... And then, once again, when God is about to do something major, like bring destruction upon the southern kingdom at the hands of the Babylonians, he raises up prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So you see, you couldn't find a prophet just any old day of the week in Israel. It wasn't just an every single day kind of thing. It came in seasons, times of transition, major changes, times when God was about to do something huge. Now, when God raised up these prophets with his message to the people, you could almost always count on there being a false prophet or two or three or four or ten or twenty just around the corner with a counter message, a counterfeit message, emerging with a competing voice among the people. Now there is usually a distinction between the voice of the true prophet and the voice of the false prophet. They were usually fairly consistent. And the consistent voice of God's true prophet went something like this. Repent, O Israel. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn your hearts to the Lord. Walk in His ways. Incline your heart toward Him. Turn away from your idols. If you do not repent, I will bring swift destruction upon you at the hands of a foreign army per the stipulations of the covenant as defined in Deuteronomy 28. Turn from your wicked ways or you will be judged. I will bring wrath. Not a very exciting message. But the false prophets, on the other hand, had a fairly consistent message that went something like this. No, 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 don't be alarmed don't be alarmed at that. We're God's chosen. We're the apple of His eye. His sanctuary is in our midst. We're safe. Would God destroy His people and His sanctuary and His land? No. Peace and safety. Peace and safety. It's all good. 
a much happier, warm and fuzzy kind of message to which the people's hearts would be inclined. Now go ahead and turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 14. I would highly, highly, highly encourage you, if you have not done so or if you have not done so in a long time, to read the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is rich. Now, I believe that the better you understand Jeremiah and his prophetic ministry, the better you will understand Jesus and John the Baptist and their prophetic ministry. All right? My heart just goes out to this poor man, Jeremiah. I mean, this poor guy was given a message from God to deliver to the people a true message. And when he delivered that message, their response was not exactly favorable. I mean, they wanted to put the guy to death. And their response was, come on, Jeremiah, why are you speaking like this? Why can't you be like these other guys? I mean, why do you got to be such a buzzkill? I mean, why do you always have to be the bearer of bad news, such a Debbie Downer? I mean, come on. Why, these guys over here are saying peace and safety. Why do you have to bring this message of doom and destruction and repentance? Well, in Jeremiah 14.10, we kind of see a uh, beginning, beginning in verse 10 and, and following. We'll see a good example of God's true prophetic voice and then a competing voice in that of the false prophets. Beginning in verse, verse 10, we read, this is what the Lord says about this people. So we see uh, Jeremiah about to speak forth a, a prophetic word from God to the people of Israel. This is what he says. They greatly love to wander. They do not restrain their feet, so the Lord does not accept them. He will now remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. Okay, and a little transition. Then, then he says, this is... Then, then the Lord said to me, to me, Jeremiah, this is not what I'm saying to the people, this is what God said to me, do not pray for the well-being of this people. Although they fast, I will not listen to their cry. Although they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Instead, I will destroy them with the sword, famine, and plague, as consistent with Deuteronomy 28. Verse 13, but I said, now this is Jeremiah's response to God, alas, Sovereign Lord, the prophets keep telling them, you will not see the sword or suffer famine. Indeed, I will give you lasting peace in this place. So Jeremiah is told by God, tell the people, famine, sword, plague, destruction. That's what God told me, Jeremiah, to tell you the people. But then over here, we've got all these other prophets saying, no, 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 I will give you lasting peace and safety in this place. So, God, you're telling me to tell them destruction. What about all these other prophets over here? They've got a counter message. They've got a competing voice of peace and safety. Well, verse 14, we see the Lord's response to Jeremiah. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. Well, it's easy to just slap a thus saith the Lord onto something and, and make it sound like, like this is a message from God. This is what God told me to tell you. It doesn't make it true, but it sure does put a stamp of approval on it in the eyes and minds of the people. It sure does seem to give it authority. Oh, God said that? Okay, Jehovah said so. The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They're prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own minds. 
So we've got these competing voices. The voice of God that Jeremiah is speaking forth, and then these other guys with a competing voice. And look what, look what God says about what they're saying. They're speaking forth delusions of their own minds. Lies. Well, in a, in a culture like ours, where everybody wants to be okay with everybody, and that's a good thing, but in a culture where nobody likes to make exclusive truth claims because then we're going to be calling other people liars or speaking forth delusions of their own minds, this would not be a very popular message. And to be honest with you, I don't think it was a very popular message in Jeremiah's day based on their response. Speaking forth to you delusions of their own minds. Verse 15. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the prophets who are prophesying in my name. I did not send them, yet they are saying no sword or famine will touch this land. Those same prophets, false prophets in case you haven't caught on by now, those same prophets will perish by the sword and famine. In other words, they're saying that the sword and famine won't come. Well, guess what? The sword and famine that they're saying isn't going to come really is going to come, and they're going to perish by them. That will be the fruit of their message in the end. Verse 16, And the people they are prophesying to will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. There will be no one to bury them, their wives, their sons, and their daughters. I will pour out on them the calamity that they deserve. So to give you some context, this is just before the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. by the hands of the Babylonians. God is speaking forth through Jeremiah. You guys have been wicked. I'm bringing Babylon against you. The false prophets are saying, no, 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 peace and safety. Everything's cool. God's going to protect us from Babylon. We're his people in his land with his sanctuary. We're good. Jeremiah's like, no, no, no. This is what God says. They're saying that the sword and famine isn't going to come. It is going to come. And not only are the false prophets, but the people that they're leading astray are all going to perish by the sword and famine and the plague and the fire at the hands Babylon. <clears throat> now this was not exclusive to Jeremiah's ministry. This was how things went throughout Israel, throughout history. Jesus kind of makes this clear. As we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at some parallel passages in Luke. We've been walking through Matthew 5-7. through 7. Well, we saw in, in Luke's Gospel, we've got some, some very parallel messages. And in Luke's parallel message to Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Blessed are you when people persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, but woe to you when people speak well of you, for that is how they treated the false prophets. I mean, that's, that's, been, that's been Israel's practice throughout history. Oh, you got a message for me saying I need to turn from my wicked ways or God's going to bring wrath and punishment against me? Forget you. I'll listen to this guy. I like this guy. I like his message. He's, he's making me feel good about myself and my ways. He's making me feel secure. That's how people have always been, Jesus warns his first century audience. So when you get on board with the message of the true prophets, which is consistent with my message, don't be surprised if people hate you. They hated Jeremiah. They hated Isaiah. They hated Malachi. They hated Zedekiah. All the prophets. They hated them. All the Ayahs. All the Ezekiahs. All the Zayas and the Ezekiels and all of them. They hated them. 
Don't be surprised if people hate you for telling the truth. Don't be surprised if they all fall in line behind the false prophets. So with that as an understanding, with that as a backdrop, let's jump into Matthew 7. I would encourage you to kind of keep your place in Jeremiah. I'd like to return there a little bit later uh, to draw another parallel. But, but I think that as a historical backdrop, that um, kind of definition of terms there, I think that will give us a good, healthy starting place to understand the words of Jesus here in Matthew 7. We'll be walking through verses 15 through 20. Beginning in verse 15, Jesus says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And just want to undergird the context here. You get to that last part, and, and we almost kind of forget how he starts. Remember how he starts. Beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Who's the them? The false prophets. You get to the end here, and it's tempting to forget that we're talking about the false prophets. By their fruit, you will recognize them. That's what this passage is all about. Learning to discern between the competing voices of true prophets and false prophets. There would be competing voices. To which voice shall his first century audience lend their ear? He starts off by saying, they come to you in sheep's clothing. These false prophets, they will come to you in sheep's clothing. But what exactly does that mean? Well, throughout the scriptures we find metaphors. And one major theme, one major metaphor that we see consistently throughout the scriptures is that of sheep. Sheep is consistently used throughout the Bible to pertain to the people of God, the flock of his covenant community, Israel. And in the new covenant, believers in Jesus Christ, the new Israel, the true Israel, the spiritual Israel. So the sheep represents Israel. He says, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. In other words, on the outside, they look like true prophets. They look like God's true people. But inwardly, they're ferocious wolves. They're really wolves, but on the outside, they look like sheep. What, what does wolves represent here? Well, think about the relationship between wolves and sheep. Wolves are ravenous animals that would devour sheep, kind of like any other ravenous animal, like lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, watch out for them. Because on the inside, they're the kind of people who will devour God's people. Put them to death. Prowling around like a hungry lion, looking for someone to devour. That's how the adversary works. On the inside, they're the adversary. On the outside, they look like they have your best interest in mind because they look like your brother. Beware of them and their message. 
So after saying beware, because they're going to look like true prophets, they're going to look like the true people of God, beware. Now he's going to give them a little bit of guidance in discerning between these competing voices. He says, by their fruit, verse 16, by their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree, now we've got another metaphor here, a good tree is representative of a true prophet. A bad tree is representative of a false prophet. Good tree bears good fruit, bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. What does he mean by this good fruit, bad fruit business? Well, I believe that there are two components to this fruit bearing business. The first of which is their lives. What kind of life are they leading? And the second is their message. What does their message yield? So let's, let's look at each of these. The first component being their life. What kind of life do they lead? What kind of fruit are they producing in a sense of how they're living their life? Well, in this message, the Sermon on the Mount, we see a consistent theme of righteousness. 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 And a true prophet, a good tree, should live a life that resembles that of the righteousness that God desires, that God prescribes. That which is laid out by Jesus in the body of this sermon. Jesus tells them in this sermon, you are the light of the world, O Israel. So if you're the light, what kind of fruit should you be bearing? The fruit of the light. Well, what is the fruit of the light? Well, Ephesians 5 tells us that the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So a good tree or a true prophet should be leading a life that yields goodness, righteousness, and truth. Let's talk about truth for a minute. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. John 14, 6. Well, if any <coughs> prophet out there, if any one of these competing voices out there denies Jesus or rejects Jesus, that's clearly a false prophet because that individual is not yielding the fruit of truth, which is a component of the fruit of the light. They're yielding the fruit of darkness, which is falsehood, denying the truth of Jesus. So any prophetic voice out there who denies Jesus or rejects Jesus can be rejected as a false prophet. The other components of the fruit of the light are righteousness and goodness. Jesus calls his true people to a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He's raising the bar on the moral standards for life in God's covenant community. Consistently, he points out that the religious leaders of his day put on a show of outward righteousness while inwardly they were full of wickedness. Jesus is calling his people to a life that is characterized by righteousness of the heart, a true inner righteousness. Because in the kingdom, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. 
So a true prophetic voice, a good tree, should be living consistently with the goodness and righteousness prescribed by Jesus Christ. So that's the first component, the fruit of one's life, how they're living. Goodness, righteousness, truth. Well, the second component of the fruit of these prophetic voices, who would be competing voices, is their message. We've got two competing messages in Jesus' day. Right? What would be the fruit of these messages? Because the test of a true prophet, based on Deuteronomy 18, is does what they say come true? Because if it doesn't, it's false prophet. Okay, so in Jesus' day, much like Jeremiah's day, you've got competing voices. One of those voices is the voice of Jesus and the voice of the true prophets after him. Repent, turn from your wicked ways, incline your heart towards God, or I will bring destruction upon this people and upon this land at the hands of the Romans in this generation. The competing message, the competing voice of the false prophets was much like that of the voice of the false prophets in Jeremiah's day. No! Don't be alarmed by those guys. Yeah, Jesus, I could even, I could even get behind the idea that he's the Messiah, that he's the prophet, but nothing really needs to change. I mean, look, we're enjoying the Pax Romana. We're enjoying the peace of Rome, peace and safety. God's not going to bring destruction through them. God's not going to destroy his sanctuary and his land and his people. We have God's favor. Things are going great. Don't, don't be alarmed by those Debbie Downers. I'm trying to kill the buzz, man. This is great. We're good. We're good. Competing voices. And these competing voices were mutually exclusive, diametrically opposed. They both cannot be true at the same time. God cannot be both destroying the Jews in that generation at the hands of the Romans and not destroying them at the hands of the Romans in that generation. They both cannot be true at the same time. So which voice would yield the fruit of fulfillment? Jesus, John the Baptist, John, James, Peter, Paul, they all affirmed and confirmed this very message. In Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, we see very clearly in 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 1, you don't have to turn there, it's going to be in and out of there. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. You know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is a phrase that was used consistently throughout the Old Testament scriptures to designate a time when God would bring destruction upon a nation at the hands of another nation. We see several days of the Lord throughout the scriptures. Several of them. The day of the Lord spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 5 by the Apostle Paul, the true prophetic voice of God, pertains to the day of the Lord, Rome, destroying Jerusalem in 70 AD. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, about times and days, we don't need to write you. You know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Competing voices. 
The voice of Jesus says, it's coming like a thief in the night. In this generation, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, flee to the mountains, for you know that the time is near. I will bring wrath and vengeance upon these people in fulfillment of all that has been written. The competing voice? Peace and safety. And while they're saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains on a pregnant woman. We know a little bit about that, don't we? So what would be the fruit of these messages? Well, the fruit of fulfillment lies in Jesus' message and the message of the true prophets after him. The fruit of falsehood lies in the message of those who are saying peace and safety. When we peel back the veil of history and look down the corridors of time, what do we find? We find that in that generation, within 40 years, before some of those standing there died, before they finished going throughout the cities of Israel, we see that Rome indeed did come and destroy Jerusalem. We see that those who said peace and safety were leading many down a broad road that led to destruction. And we see that the voice of the true prophet and the voice of Jesus led a righteous remnant down a narrow path and through a narrow gate that led to life. Jesus brings this section to a close. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus by their fruit you will recognize them. I think a lot of people today will take this text and rather than seeing it in light of its historical context, in light of its biblical context, in light of its covenantal context, jump straight to application to today. And I believe that results in misinterpretation. Because it's easy... If we just take that little text out of context, it's easy to forget that this passage is about false prophets. And it's easy to forget that Jesus was speaking to disciples in his midst in his day. And it's easy to forget that they were living under the old covenant which had certain stipulations. And it's easy to forget that we've got a historical backdrop like that of Jeremiah where history is now repeating itself. It's easy to forget those things. But when we keep those things at the forefront of our mind, which I have labored over and over to show you that Jesus is not talking to Americans in the 21st century. He's talking to Jews in the 1st century. Hopefully we see this by now and hopefully we're able to see this message in light of its true context and we can see what this fire means. It's easy. If we forget all those things, it's easy to go, what Jesus is saying here is that if you, you look at Christians today and if they're a super Christian then, well, they're going to go to heaven. And if they don't bear good fruit, if they're not you know, bearing a certain number of good deeds, then, well, they're going to go to hell and burn forever. I don't think that's what this passage is teaching. Okay? I think when we see it in context, it's teaching the very same thing that Jeremiah was teaching. Flip back with me to Jeremiah. This time we'll be in uh, chapter 21. And I think this will help clear up what is meant by this fire. Jeremiah 21, beginning in verse 8. God, speaking to Jeremiah, says, Furthermore, tell the people, this is what the Lord says. See, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But... 
whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you will live. They will escape with their lives. I have determined to do this city, Jerusalem, harm. Not good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon and he will destroy it with fire. Talking real fire set ablaze by a foreign army. Verse 11, Moreover, say to the royal house of Judah, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says to you, house of David. Administer justice every morning. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who is being robbed. In other words, to call to righteous living, consistent with all of the prophetic voice of Scripture. Be righteous. Or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. I am against you, Jerusalem, you who live above this valley on the rocky plateau, declares the Lord. You who say, who can come against us? Who can enter our refuge? Peace and safety. They thought they were secure in their fortress. Verse 14, I will punish you as your deeds deserve, declares the Lord. I will kindle a fire in your forests that will consume everything around you. So in Jeremiah's day, they had competing voices. The voice of Jeremiah, God's true prophet, God is bringing destruction. He will bring literal fire at the hands of the Babylonians or the competing voice of the false prophets. Peace and safety, we're going to be okay because we're in this refuge. Now, while Jesus' message had special, specific, particular relevance to his original audience, because after all, at that time, it was the establishment of the kingdom, and God was raising up prophets in this time of transition from the old heavens and earth to the new heavens and earth, from the old covenant economy to the new covenant economy, a time when God was about to do something major, something huge, bring destruction at the hands of a foreign army. God raised up prophets... There were indeed false prophets in their midst with a competing voice. He was preparing them for what they were about to experience. While it has special relevance to them in their day, it's also relevant to you and I today because we still deal with competing voices. There's competing voices out there of those who would claim to have a prophetic voice on behalf of God. In the 6th century, a man was born named Muhammad. He claimed to be the true messenger of God, God's true prophet. He proclaimed his message, gathered a number of followers, and over time that message grew. He established a new religion, which we know today as Islam. Now that message did not die with the self-proclaimed prophet Muhammad. That message is alive and well today, growing rapidly. It's a competing voice. It's a voice that's competing with the prophetic voice of the Bible. These are voices that we cannot reconcile. When one of them says... Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. There is only one name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved, the name Jesus Christ. When one message, when one voice proclaims this 
exclusively. And yet in the Quran, we have the prophetic voice of Allah through his servant, the prophet Muhammad, which says, one must follow the ways of Muhammad. And besides, God doesn't have a son, nor was Jesus ever really crucified. They just thought that happened. We can't reconcile these two messages together. When one says, God doesn't have a son, and Jesus, well, he may be a prophet, but he wasn't ever crucified. They just thought that happened. And yet the prophetic voice of the Bible says that Jesus was indeed crucified so that through faith in his name, men might be reconciled to God and brought into right relationship through him. These are competing voices that can't reconcile. They can't go hand in hand. They're mutually exclusive. They're diametrically opposed. So which prophetic voice do we adhere to? You see, if a man claims to be a prophet of God and claims to have a message of God to the people, that's serious business. Because if Muhammad is really a prophet of God, if he is truly a messenger of God with God's message on God's behalf, we need to be listening to him. And we need to be doing what he says. We need to be making a pilgrimage to Mecca sometime in our lifetime. We need to be fasting during the month of Ramadan. We need to be bowing down five times a day in prayer. We need to be following the stipulations set forth by that prophet of God. But if he's a false prophet, on the other hand, then his claims must be rejected as a voice in competition with the true prophetic voice of Scripture. In the early 1800s, another man emerged as a prophet of God, a man named Joseph Smith who claimed that God came to him, appointed him as his prophet because all of these denominations out here, these Methodists and these Baptists and these Episcopalians, they all got it wrong. These, all these denominations out here, they're just all messed up. So God raised up this prophet, Joseph Smith, to be the true voice of God and to establish the true denomination of the church. And with him was birthed Mormonism. And with him emerged the Book of Mormon with yet another competing voice, a voice that competes directly with the voice of the Bible and stands in contradiction to it. But here's the deal. If Joseph Smith is truly a prophet of God, then we need to tune our ears into his message and obey him. But if he's just another voice in competition to the true prophetic voice of Scripture, and his voice stands in contradiction to the Scriptures, then it can be rejected as falsehood. Well, in the past half century, people have gotten pretty gung-ho on the ability to predict the second coming of Jesus Christ. One individual, Edgar Wiesenhut, Wiesenhut, wrote a book entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. 4.5 million copies of this book were sold. He was quoted as saying, Only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. And I said that to every preacher in town. And if there were a king in this country, 
and I could gamble with my life, I would stake my life on Rosh Hashanah, 1988. What happened in 1988? Got some garbage pail kids and some baseball cards. Yes. <laughs> Harold Camping more recently predicted that Jesus Christ would return to earth on May 21st, 2011, whereupon the righteous would be raptured up to heaven. There would follow five months of fire, brimstone, and plagues on the earth with millions of people dying each day, culminating on October 21st, 2011 with the final destruction of the world. What happened in 2011? Our church got a year older. <laughs> such voices, such competing voices stand in contradiction to the words of our Lord who said in Matthew 16, 27 and 28, I tell you the truth, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and at that time reward each man according to what He has done. I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. To which prophetic voice shall we lend our ear? Which competing voice should we ally ourselves with? I'm going to side with the voice of Jesus. Another competing voice or voices comes from a particular group within Christianity considered uh, orthodox, and that is a branch of Pentecostal or charismatic Christians. Now, according to Wikipedia, there are over 500 million adherents to Pentecostal and Charismatic Christianity. These groups believe in the continuation of the miraculous gifts today. Now, to quote Wikipedia, any spirit-filled Christian, according to Pentecostal theology, has the potential, as with all the gifts, to prophesy. Okay? So according to this group and according to their theology, there are over 500 million people who have the capacity to deliver a message on behalf of God to the people. That's a lot of competing voices. Sometimes competing with one another, sometimes competing with the scriptures. Now, with all of these competing voices, it can be confusing. It can be confusing. Much like the poor five-year-old playing t-ball, trying to discern between the competing voices, saying, throw it to first! No, no, no! Throw it to second! No, no, no! Throw it to third! Well, the stakes are pretty low for a five-year-old playing t-ball. I mean, he can get him out at any of those bases. Well, the stakes are higher when it comes to one playing in the major leagues, if he doesn't get the lead runner, that lead runner's in scoring position. That <coughs> cost dollars. Well, the stakes are even higher when it comes to trying to discern the truth of the will of God. One's eternal destiny is at stake. When the competing voices make exclusive truth claims about what is true and false about attaining relationship with God. This is why the matter of discerning between the competing voices is so important. It's important because, number one, truth matters. It matters because Jesus calls his followers to be people of the truth and to reject falsehood. 
It matters because when somebody makes a claim in the name of Jesus Christ or in the name of Yahweh, makes and promotes a false or erroneous claim, it does a few things. Number one, it makes Christians look foolish. It makes Christianity look foolish. If you look up, if you Google what happened on May 21st, 2011, do it. See what you find. Because Harold Camping, while he did not represent my voice and your voice and my belief and your belief, well, he sure did get out there in the media and promote his message. And those who know no better likened his message to ours. Look at those foolish Christians out there trying to predict the end of the world again. And such erroneous predictions in the name of Jesus Christ when one says, only if the Bible is an error am I wrong. Hey, if there was a king in this country and I could gamble with my life, I would risk everything on this date. When somebody makes claims like that, those who don't know any better will drink the Kool-Aid. We have to know better. How are we going to know better? By knowing the Scriptures. By knowing intimately the true prophetic voice of the Bible. And that's why those who work at banks are taught to know intimately what true bills look like. Because when they know very intimately how to spot a true Benjamin, they can spot a counterfeit more easily. We will do well to get our understanding of God's desires, of God's will, from the scriptures alone. And we will do well to turn a deaf ear to all of the competing prophetic voices out there listening to the prophetic voice of the scriptures and the scriptures alone. So what does it mean? It means that for you and I, as citizens of the kingdom, our cry shall be sola scriptura, the Bible alone. Amen?